Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. These are the last days of Prohibition, and this show seeks to feature the stories of the founders, the investors, the marketers that are bridging the gap. The day of getting a little dime bag from your guy on the corner is done. It's not happening. As entrepreneurs, as the new wave of, of cannabis companies, we have a duty to learn about the things that came before us, about the companies and the people that struggled and sacrificed, went to jail, went to prison for long terms to make sure that we can legally, semi-legally, consume cannabis in California and the rest of the country. And the point here is that the fight is not over, right? I mean, in California, in our little bubble, it's very easy to get caught up in the idea that you can smoke anywhere and we can grow it and we can sell it. But for most of the world, most of the country, this is still a highly illegal Schedule One drug. So today on the show, we have Todd McCormick, who is an absolute legend in the space. Recently, Todd co-executive produced The Culture High, the follow-up to The Cult Hit The Union. These two films are incredibly inspirational. They inspired us to start this show. Is the rationale of protecting people from themselves valid? And they continue Whatever. to inspire so many others to get into the legal cannabis business. What is meant by war on drugs? That's a very good question. War on marijuana is a symptom of something that's fundamentally wrong in this country. Uh, if you haven't checked them out yet, they're both on Netflix. Take a couple hours. Very well worth it. At the same time, Todd has been building Hemp.XXX magazine and social network, all focusing on the cannabis community. And on Sundays, they do this really cool Google Hangout where you can go on and, and talk to Todd and other experts and post things and, and really get involved in the community. The majority of Todd's interview is a deep dive into his experience as an activist in the early days of cannabis prohibition. His personal story is also a fascinating look into early use of medical marijuana. Before medical marijuana was really even a thing, he was diagnosed with cancer as a very, very young boy, and his mother made the choice to give him medical marijuana, even though it was highly illegal at the time. This sparked a, an in inspiration inside of him, a fire that he carried throughout his life as he did so many, many different activist things. He literally wrote the book, How to Grow Medical Marijuana, which says on the back, Todd McCormick may spend the rest of his life in prison for researching this book. He talks about being raided by the police. He's super open about his charges and court cases and events that led up to him spending five years in prison. These are just watershed moments in, in cannabis, things that inspired me and inspired this show. Uh, it's a fantastic episode. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. I want to start a little bit with your childhood here. I think it's fascinating. You were, you were diagnosed with cancer at, at what age for the first time? I actually had, I actually had tumors uh, nine times in the years. Well, I had, ten, I had it 10 times in my childhood, but I had it nine times in the years between ages two and 10. Uh, I had it at first in my spine, my first five vertebrae now fused uh, since 72, since I was a kid. Then it moved up into my skull. I had it in three locations, and then it moved into my right ear. I had it in two more locations, all of which I went through surgery, chemotherapy. So there's me and my first body cast, 1972. This was a halo because my spine was fused. So this went around my neck, uh, around my head and went down my back. And then this is a body cast I'm wearing under this sweater. And this is before or after you tried cannabis? For I was only two years old. I wouldn't oh, try cannabis that? for another oh, like two years seven years at this point. Yeah, I'm like two, three years old. I had a lot of hair all the time when I was a little kid. 
And then I moved down to my left hip. I had it in two locations in my hip and I was in a wheelchair for most of the part of a year. And then about six months after I started walking again, I, it moved up between my left lung and my heart. I have a big scar here. And that's when my mom uh, really started considering giving me cannabis. I was going through chemotherapy and radiation simultaneously. Mm. And my mom uh, was sitting in a doctor's office and there was a good housekeeping magazine. I actually got a copy of it because I sort of didn't believe her. But uh, it was February of 1978 and it was a cancer issue. And she picked it up and found a piece in the doctor's column that talked about uh, cancer being uh, treated or chemotherapy patients using cannabis to help them through treatment. So my mother brought it in to my pediatrician who was fairly open-minded and had already been through so much with me. And at that point, when I had it between my left lung and my heart, it was probably the most precarious position that I'd had it in. And they felt like it, you know, potentially was gonna be fatal. And he, you know, wasn't against it. So the way it happened was my mom, on the way home from the doctor's visit, literally, you know, had me you know, basically sit down lower than the door still and gave me a joint and oh, said, wow. sip it like a straw. And what age were you again at this point? I was nine. You were nine. I was nine, yeah. But I was coming home from chemotherapy and radiation. Yeah. So, um, and you I were was, in tremendous pain, right? Well, is, is yeah, the... more nauseous and dizzy. Okay. Yeah. Um, they, the chemo makes you very nauseous, and the radiation treatments make you very dizzy and weak feeling because it's, uh, it's what it was back then. And when we got home, I, I felt pretty good. I wanted spinach. And uh, my mom was stoned and thought, what did I do? And called my doctor and he was cool. And I, you know, she tells me later and he said, you know, tomorrow don't do it and see how he reacts. And so the next day I went through my treatment and uh, on the way home, I didn't smoke. I was feeling horrible. And she sent me up to my room and she called my doctor and said, back to feeling horrible. And he said, well, go upstairs and give him some. So my mom came upstairs with a joint and she had her own joint and we sat on the floor and we started smoking and um, I put on Don McLean, American Pie, a little 45, I had to flip <laughs> it over. I, me and my mom sat there getting high and, I, and honestly, I, I, I felt, it, anyone that's going through the treatment, you know, they talk about how cannabis or marijuana gets you high. Well, if, you're, if, if, you're going, if this is normal and you're going through a feeling of low, mm. you know, getting high is barely hitting normal for, yeah. for someone going through depression and physical trauma. And it, it helped me a lot. And my mom went downstairs, made me some spinach. And Why spinach? That, that's your munchie of choice? I don't know, man. I thought Popeye was cool, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I did. I liked buttered sauteed spinach. Who, who would have thunk? The stoner choice of <laughs> munchies. But, you know, people ask me a lot when I was older and advocating cannabis for treatment, you know, do you think cannabis caused your cancer to go into remission and, or, or, you know, saved you from cancer? And I would say, look, you know, when you're going through these various treatments, you lose your appetite, you can't sleep at night, you feel depressed, your, your moods go down, your energy levels go down. But when you start using cannabis, you know, you get your appetite back, you start sleeping through the night, you have better rest, you have a better mental state, you know, you, you feel a little elevated from the depressed place that you're at. And I mean, don't, you know, it's hard for me to hear anybody say, well, if you have cancer, I don't know why you're depressed. <laughs> so it helps on a lot of levels and all those things combined brought me to a place of, of healthy of living and being able to take care of you know, the situation. Got it. And this is 1978, where, where are you at this 79. time? 79, I grew up in uh, Rhode Island. In Rhode I, Island. I was, um, and, and what is sort of the 
community response? You know, I mean, does your mom have friends that know about this, or what's what's the feedback? Um, you know, I my mom was a, a hippie, so none of her friends were going to give her a hard time about what she was doing with me. I mean, we so uh, eagerly dump whatever pharmaceuticals our doctors recommend into our kids, um, and then and we do it in blind trust. I mean, you take something like cannabis who, you know, that, you, that she had experienced as being safe and effective for her own mood swings and her own feelings of blues. Uh, so I don't think she was afraid to give it to her kid. Uh, so I don't, and I was nine, I was in a bubble. I was, you know, going through cancer and dealing, so I don't really, I couldn't tell you what. And, and we weren't sharing it because, I mean, as a kid, I was sworn to secrecy. I mean, my mom was like, this is a bomb. You don't know what this is. This is rolling papers. You've you never seen them before. Yeah. If you go to school and they ask, does your mommy have a pipe? The answer is what? No. Because right? she was obviously conscious of oh, we giving your nine-year-old cannabis is you know, asking for it. She, she right? really, I, well, you know, we were at the beginning of the D.A.R.E. program and stuff like that starting. And I never went through D.A.R.E. I was a little just... But, but when my mom was conscious that they were doing these things in school, so instead of her trying to lie to me, she kind of brought me into her team. So it was like, look, the world sucks, and you're going to have to you know, lie a bit to these hypocrites and bigots, but if they find out I'm giving you pot, they'll take you away. And I got it. Hardcore, I got it. So I was... Sounds like a cool-ass mom, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> she was so real with you, right? She was. You yeah. know, but look, I got my first motorcycle when I was eight, my second when I was 12. She put a lot of responsibility on me at a young age. She, you know, I think in all efforts, they wanted to raise me to become an adult. They didn't want extended yeah. adolescence coming out of their child. And, you know, the world's a rough place. And uh, I was going through so much with cancer that they treated me more like an adult. Yeah. than a kid. Sure, because yeah. you were dealing with very adult problems. At the, Absolutely. That and then yeah. my little brother was Down syndrome, and I never got to be like a big brother in the sense of, you know, horseplay and stuff. I had to be responsible, hold his hand, look both ways down the street. I always had to be hypersensitive to what was around me and others. So, uh, so as your cancer goes into remission, which was about age 10 or so, right? So Absolutely. we're talking about 1980, something yeah. like that now? Okay. And do you continue smoking cannabis? No. I mean, is it... No, no I actually didn't. Um, when I went into a bit of spontaneous remission, like, I stopped using cannabis because I, I stopped going through radiation. I stopped going through chemotherapy. So there was an element of not necessarily needing it, if this makes sense. Yep. So yep. we just... Yeah, but, but then when I got my motorcycle when I was 12 and I started strapping a helmet on my head and, and riding trails, I started getting a lot of neck pain. And I went to my doctor, who I was seeing regularly still, um, and said, could I get pain medication? And he said, no. He said, listen, your spinal fusion's never going to get better. You're always going to have chronic pain, and there's nothing I could prescribe to you that you're not going to become physically or mentally addicted to. So, no. And I was just a bit stunned, and I was like, well, what do I do? You know, and he's like, you're still smoking your mom's pot? I remember him saying, I was like... Same doctor. Yeah, he was cool with me, though. And, <laughs> and I was like, no. And he was like, it's not your worst option. And I was like, uh. I'm 12. I'm like 12 years old. But, you know, I was, he knew that it was... He knew... He, they gave me a lot of, I think, room to breathe because none of... You know, they didn't expect me to make it when I was a little kid. Yeah. And I was really lucky. And when I hit... You know, 12, 13, and I was skipping school and riding trails. I think they were just happy that I was alive yeah. and breathing and enjoying life. Yeah. So, did you feel a little bit like you had to recapture some of that childhood? Is that is that where that came from? No, I was I was 12. I, that was my childhood. I mean, yeah. I, as a little kid, uh, my stepdad was a biker, and I grew up around 
Harleys and dirt bikes and all these vehicles. And I, as a little kid, you know, I loved Easy Rider and In the Wind and all these biker magazines. And so as a little kid, a little biker kid. So I'm sure they just gave me a bike because it, you know, whatever, it looked cool to give your little kid a bike. But it, for me, when I was 12, it gave me freedom. It gave mm -hmm. me independence. It allowed me to go explore nature because my hips were messed up. I can't, you know, walking around three miles isn't exactly my idea of a good time, but jumping on a motorcycle, I could go explore the city, go ride trails. It opened up the world to me. I, I've had a motorcycle ever since. So you start smoking again for your helmet pain, right? <laughs> helmet the, pain, I love that, yeah. Helmet pain. Neck pain, yeah, neck I did. Pain? Yep. And that neck, was it. Pain. Yeah. Uh, and then that sparks the interest going forward in cannabis or? Yeah, technically I was 12 and uh, I was scoring pot from my mom. And when uh, I had a, I was a little kid with a big motorcycle and most of the kids were big kids with little motorcycles. So I would pass them pretty routinely. And one day they all stopped to smoke weed and I stopped and they were like, what do you know about marijuana McCormick? And I was like, why is it brown? And they were like, it comes brown. I was like, it don't grow brown, guys, you know? And they were like, what do you know about pot? And I went back and I got my bag and I had a little, I got a 20 bag for my mom and I broke it in half and I actually rolled two joints and left half at home and took half with me for whatever reason. And when I got there, I lit a joint and I started handing it to them. And and every single one of them started coughing, every one of them. And uh, it was funny because my tall friend was like, wow, that's what it's supposed to feel like. You know? and, and then my friend offered me, and mind you, I had like a little $8 bag of weed in my opinion. And he's like, if I gave you $20 for this, would you feel like I ripped you off? I was like, sold, actually sold. Yeah, I'll take that 20 bucks. And the other kid was like, can I get one too? I was like, yes, yes, you can get one too. And I was 12, I had 40 bucks, I was and rich. the entrepreneur was born. Oh, I was, ah, oh, I went right back. Mom, take another bag. She was like, I don't know, honey, you know, uh, I can't give you one every day. And I was like, can I just buy it? You know, and she was like, the look on her face was sheer horror, I remember, but the answer was, mm, sure, uh-oh, you know, and, that was it, and honestly, at age 12, I started buying ounces for 90 bucks, I'd break it into four bags, I'd sell them for 40 bucks a piece, I'd make, you know, <clears throat> 70 bucks an ounce, and uh, life was good for a 12-year-old kid. Do you have kids of your own? Please? Hell no, I'd scare the hell out of me, yeah. I never want to have kids. What if I have a little kid like me? I don't know what I'd oh, do. Oh, that's exactly what I was gonna ask. <laughs> I'd if you freak had out, kid, man. No, I don't want a 12-year-old who rides motorcycles and sells weed, I actually don't. But, <laughs> but it worked out really good for me. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then the next year, I was around 13 years old, and I went to sell a bag of pot to my friend's older brother, who was all of 19 at the time, and lived on his own. And when I went into his apartment, he had built a little uh, plywood grow room that was maybe, you know, two feet deep, three feet wide, or four feet wide with fluorescent lights hanging in it. And it was like seeing the Wizard of Oz in color. It was, it was the first time I'd ever seen this. And I, I basically traded him the $20 bag of pot he wanted in front for uh, the Mel Frank grow book. <laughs> and I came home, cleaned up my closet. I found the fluorescent lights in grandma's basement. I found the pots in the shed. I found the dirt in the shed. Um, I found the pulleys. They were our old laundry lines. Uh, the, the timer was in the front window. The only thing I had to go buy was fertilizer. And I suddenly realized why all my grandma's houseplants died because she wasn't fertilizing them. So <laughs> it was funny. And uh, I had seeds because I was a dealer. And uh, I started growing immediately. And it worked. And as a kid, I did a lot of homeschooling. and hospital schools, so I was used to reading books and going through them myself. 
and that's what happened. I just went chapter by chapter, and I, I did cloning and everything like it was in the little exercises, you know, got rooting powder, put it in the napkin. You were a student. You were a student. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And literally, I used to literally cut school and tell grandma I was going to the library, and I literally was going to the library, but I didn't tell her, looking for books about marijuana, you know? <laughs> but that's where I found Ernest Abel's Marijuana, the first 12,000 years, mm -hmm. and I was blown away when I started reading the history of cannabis and how, you know, China used it to make paper and kept it a secret from their neighbors for 900 years. I was literally blown away. I had no idea cannabis and humanity went back so far. And, you know, now I argue that if it wasn't for cannabis, how would we have had the social um, development of Europe and Eurasia that we had. I mean, it, it, and I brought this up to someone before, I said, you know, cannabis was, pot, was responsible for the cultural development of Europe, and he said, that's huge. And I said, really, paper's not important, cloth not important, the ropes, the riggings, the sails that blew Columbus over, not important, the paints and varnishes, not important, the maps, the Bibles on his book, on his boat, made out of hemp, not important. Well, you kidding All of me? it was made of hemp. And think about this, absolutely, all canvas. When, when Columbus sailed to India, looking for a shorter path to India, India yeah. this is why we have Indians, yeah. and, uh, but when he came here, he found a plant that he didn't know existed, tobacco, and he could not find a plant that was responsible for, like I just said, his sails, ropes, riggings, cloth, paper, uh, every bit of his boat that was held together was a part of hemp. You know, there, there are no cloth ropes for sailboats. There are no cloth sails that are made of cotton, I should say. It's no, there are no cotton ropes or cotton sails because it's too thin. We didn't get a cotton gin until the 1790s. So when you think about Columbus sailing the seas in 1492, uh, we didn't have cotton as an option for 300 more years. Yep. So only thing they were growing was cannabis because the canvas, the word canvas is a cognate of the word cannabis. Wow. So all canvas goods came from the cannabis plant. So all the great art in Italy and France and all the museums, all on canvas, which is cannabis cloth. Wow. And you go back before polymers in our paints, they were all cannabis oils with pigments. Our first paints and varnishes were hemp seed oil based. Before we went and killed whales for whale oil, we were using hemp seed oil on land, and then we had to use that to light our, our lamps and to make our sails and to make our ropes before we could even go mess with the fish. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's so important for people to understand that, I think. I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, people who are getting into the cannabis business because it's kind of the hot new green rush. And I think we have a, we have a duty to understand where cannabis comes from, even back to hemp and Christopher Columbus and all these things, but leading up into to people like yourself that have been fighting for this for so long. Uh, and, I, and I want to touch on that a little bit. I mean, when, when was the moment that it became uh, from just cool to grow cannabis or to smoke with your motorcycle buddies to like an activist type type mentality. When, when did for, that switch? Out? For me, I had moved to California. I was tired of the cold weather and like a lot of people, I had wanderlust at a young age and I ended up moving out to San, uh, San Diego and landed in Pacific Beach and was you know, growing and, and smoking and reading a lot. And I came across uh, this book, which is Jack Harris classic, mm -hmm. and it is The Emperor Wears No Clothes. At the time, it didn't look like this. I grew this leaf, uh, and I designed this cover, actually, and it, the, the layout artist got the colors wrong. Um, but 
uh, when I read this book, it, wait, they got, how did they get the colors wrong? Um, because it's supposed to be a lighter color. It's supposed to look tan. This is a, supposed to be a piece of canvas, yeah. and then this is the uh, Declaration of Independence, We the People. So the natural color of this is tan, and then it fades into this, and I wanted it to connect to it being canvas, yeah. because the original Declaration oh, of Independence was printed on, on hemp paper. Yes. Wow. Well, well before we were cutting down trees and we had the synthetic acids that turned pulp into paper, yeah. which didn't happen until the 19th, really 19th century. Wow. Yeah. The history of cannabis, and this book really put it together for me, uh, Jack is the one that really connected the dots for a lot of us. He's, he, one of his greatest, uh, to me, contributions to this is he discovered a video called Hemp for Victory made by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1941. And it was given to him as a news source, and he gave it to a Wall Street Journal reporter. The Wall Street Journal reporter did his due diligence, contacted the Library of Congress, and said, can I get a site? And they said, there is not one. So we didn't make it. That's a fraud. You've got a fake tape. So Jack was appalled. He went to DC. He went to the Library of Congress, went through all the microfiche, could not find a citation for him for victory. Wow. He knew it was real, though, because he felt like no one's going to go out of their way to make this good of a fake. So he went outside, and he was smoking, when somebody said, you know, I wonder what they would have showed us if we had come in in 1942 or whatever and asked for this, because it wouldn't have been microfiche. And he, they all ran back in with an epiphany and said, do you have, what would you have had? And they said, well, books. We have books, and we still have them, and they're over by the printers you were using. So we went over, and they looked. They found two citations for mm. Hemp for Victory. And somehow, some way, when the people at the Library of Congress were sitting there putting stuff in, they skipped Hemp for Victory not once but twice wow. and took it out of the National Archives. So Jack had to make a photocopy of those books found at the Library of Congress and then resubmit them and have them accepted and then put into our own historical record. Wow. Yeah, but it goes to show the depths in which... Uh, the 20th century and the 20th century government went to getting cannabis purged out of our recollection in our world. And why do you think that is? Where did that sentiment start? Okay, so when you look at like me saying that cannabis was responsible for the cultural evolution of Europe, you realize that that's an industrial comment. That you know, when you start talking about paper and fibers and ropes and all these industrial uses that we have now replaced with synthetic nylon and cotton and, and polymers for paints, um, cannabis was a competitor. So, you know, Jack makes this argument that there was a big conspiracy and people were using their offices uh, to manipulate the, the federal government system. I believe that it was a little more simple where it was just crony capitalism and people looking out for their own bottom line. After World War II, we had the military industrial complex basically uh, richer and more well organized than they'd ever been in, in history. Eisenhower's speech going out was, hey, we've never had this before, look out for it. And they were calling a lot of shots. They were putting you know, their own people in office. I mean, look at the idiot we had, Bush too. I mean, this is a product of a rich oil family. And at the time, I believe that they knew cannabis was their number one source of competition and they did everything they could to get rid of that competition. They needed American farmers to stop growing hemp because I believe that we, as humans, don't let things go easily. We hold on to our tried and true. We, we, we are familiar with things. We don't, we don't like change, per se. And they were trying to force new technologies down our throat, like nylon, like uh, polymers for paints. And by getting rid of cannabis, 
it created an opening for their own economic opportunities. It's all about money, right? It's all the bottom line. Absolutely. Under it's all any about, issue. Look, we're seeing a decline in pharmaceutical sales in states where medical cannabis is now becoming legal. Don't think for a minute they don't know that pot's their competition. You've you got to understand if there was cannabis available at every single bar on Sunset Strip in Hollywood where you can buy alcohol, there'd be a lot less alcohol consumed mm. because people would have an alternative. The alcohol company knows this. The cigarette company knows this. I mean, I'm wearing hemp right now, you know, the cotton industry knows this. The people that make paper know who, who, who their competitors are. So they're all dumping money in to keep the status quo. And honestly, this is one of the things in this new industry that's bothering me because I didn't realize that pot doctors, pot clubs, and pot growers were going to be my adversary in legalization, but now they're all dealing with the same, hey, status quo, pot growers don't want to see prices drop more, they'll have to get real jobs, doctors don't want to start seeing actual patients when they've got a little paper mill going, and pot clubs don't want to see competition. Mm -hmm. If there's 10 of them on the block, their sales are going to go way down, and that's just reality. So you're dealing with this on so many levels. I mean. To me, the hypocrisy gets thicker as the profits go higher. Mm. Oh, I love that. That's a quote right there. We clip that out. That, you can add that, that one, bro. That, <laughs> you're out in California, right? You come across Jack Herrera's book, and then do you immediately approach him? Or how, how I did. Do you, how do you uh, get, yeah. At the time, there was a number on the back. I think I took it off. Um, but uh, nope, number's still on the back. But um, <laughs> it was a number up in the valley, and uh, I called up, and they were doing the California Hemp Initiative, and I... Uh, from coming from Rhode Island hadn't heard of initiatives because we don't have them in Rhode Island So I've never experienced people outside of the supermarket trying to get me to sign a, an initiative So I was a little green and was really enthralled. So I drove up there to meet them and I met Jack and Just sometimes you make best friends real easy as soon as he walked in the room we started talking and and that was that was that I, I had a pot collection at the time and I had a little duffel bag full of weed and Jack was like, you want to smoke the best goddamn pot you've ever smoked in your life? And I was like, sure. <laughs> so he we went in the back room and he had okay nah, pot. Good. He, uh, yeah, he had okay <laughs> pot. But then I started pulling out pot and I'm gonna like pull the buds off the baggie and hand it up to him. And he's like, where'd you get this? And I was like, uh, it grows on trees. And he didn't, he was like, what? You know? Like, Wait, so you walk into Jack Herrera to smoke some weed with him, and he says, I've got the best weed you've ever had. He'd had great pot. He had Richard Davis. You pull pot. out your weed, and he's impressed with what oh, you Oh, yeah. Had. No, I had really killer weed. He had and outdoor you this greenhouse weed, or pot. you just were. Yeah, yeah, I grew a lot of weed. Yeah, I, you got to realize, in 19, I've been growing for over 10 years. But this is an enormous grow. moment in your life, right? That, that Jack Herrera is telling you your weed no, is better I, than I you? didn't have, you know, I didn't have. Um, wasn't so starstruck. I, I met Jack and, and, and he was a nice guy. I wanted to thank him for putting the dots together as a child and into my adulthood. I felt a little guilty about being a pothead. Society scorned me for it, yep. made me feel like I was less of a human or, or less of a, you know, less of a person because I was, you know, some pot druggy dude, whatever. And when I read this book, it blew my mind. I mean, it, it taught me the history, it taught me the connections, gave me a lot more confidence. I just wanted to shake his hand and say thank you. But when I met him, we ended up spending up all night smoking all my weed and talking about crazy shit. And, and that was it, you know, we were best friends from that, that day on. What a memory. What an amazing memory that is. It was beautiful, yeah. yeah. But we ended up spending that whole year together. Yeah. I mean, you know, me, me and his kids are still close friends. They're like brothers and sisters to me, you know, to got this it. day. And I, I got, I love his whole family, you know, it was great. And, and he, when, he, when, he, when we sat there talking and I started telling him this history of, you know, going through cancer and everything, he was, started joking and calling me the hundredth monkey and everything. And I was like, I don't wanna be known for the monkey, you know, but <laughs> I got what he meant. And, yeah. and 
when I started doing the, the we, we used to have rallies at the Federal Building on Wilshire Boulevard. Okay. And he would um, not rent necessarily rent, but he would get a permit to have his, his uh, demonstrations there. No one else since has had the, the bravery of renting or grabbing the Federal Building for this, but we used to gather on the lawn and use the little riser as our stage, and we would you know, get up there and you know, talk crap about prohibition. And that was my first experience with like public rallies and stuff. And I didn't like what they were saying. I, Jack is great, but he yells and he gets mad. And I felt like my grandma used to say, when you speak softer, people listen harder. Mm. And I felt mm. like there was a lot of truth to that. So I felt like I could deliver the message a little softer and maybe it hit a broader audience. Mm. So that's what got me into public speaking and engaging and yeah, that's, that's kind of how the story goes, you know. But that was 1994, and then in 1995, uh, he changed the initiative. I became a proponent of it, and it, we turned it into the Hemp and Health Initiative, and we failed to get on the ballot. He had this real goal of doing it completely voluntary, which was probably unrealistic, but we were gung-ho, and he was a very enthusiastic leader, and I loved it. I, I had a great time with him back then, and. Then in 94, I went to the first Cannabis Cup Open Republic in Amsterdam. I was literally standing next to Jack at the Cannabis Castle when Ben Dronkers gave him uh, or christened the cultivar Jack Herrer. And that was really neat. And Too I bad there weren't like selfies then, because that would have been an amazing moment. <laughs> Definitely no selfies going on <laughs> in that room. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, the Dronkers family, it really goes over the top. And they had everybody in costume. And, and the Cannabis Castle was a legend already yeah. to a lot of us. You know, Neville had bred a lot of the varieties. Yeah, what is Amsterdam like in those days? Amsterdam was like visiting the future. It was like a, a breathing freedom, uh, walking into coffee shops and, and not being paranoid that the cops were following you in, uh, being able to walk up to a cop and ask him where the, other, where the next coffee shop was on your little high times map. <laughs> it was uh, utopic and I loved it so much that I moved there for over a year, a yep. uh, year later. Uh, I went back in November of 95 uh, as a guest of High Times, and I was showing around Morley Schaefer of 60 Minutes. I brought him to my doctor and everything, and uh, I ended up just, there's not a warmer social climate, I think, than the Dutch. They're such nice people. Yeah, no, I've been to Amsterdam the last three summers in a row, Yeah, uh, and I just love it. I Every love it. Time. I mean, I love San Francisco. I have a great life here, but God, it's tempting. It's, <laughs> to, to the weather up. sucks, though. So well, I'm, part I'm, of the year, right? But the yeah. summer is pretty beautiful. I was there last summer. I love it. I, you know, like I said, I fell in love with the Dutch, uh, the people, their ways. I, I, I was enthralled, and and so I ended up staying. I mean, unfortunately, though, in 1995, um, I went to the Cannabis Cup, came home. While I was there, I got a Dutch physician to give me a prescription. He had just started writing medical prescriptions for cannabis, and. Uh, somebody told me, hey, you should go talk to him. So I went to Rotterdam and met him. His name was Dr. Trousseau. And I have obviously a very valid reason for using cannabis. So he checked me out and he thought, you know, this is real legitimate. I'm going to give you a prescription. And at the time, he told me it made me internationally legal. I thought he was totally crazy. So I didn't bring home any cannabis. But then I went in uh, January of 95 with uh, Elvi Musica, who's one of the, uh, she's now the only, one of two people that get marijuana from the federal government. She has glaucoma. She's a good, good friend of mine. And uh, this gentleman who's now sadly passed away of cancer, Richard Davis, he had the USA Traveling Hemp Museum. He and I and Elvie went up to the Sacramento Law Library and did all the research we could on my international prescription just to see if there was any validity to it. And it was, uh, the doctor was right. 
you, you as an American can go to Europe. If you break something, they give you a scheduled drug. They don't expect you to stop it when you come back. So you can take up to a 90-day supply. So if you, you know some rich guy, you break your leg in Switzerland, they give you something that's Schedule 2 or Schedule 1. Here, you can still bring it back. They're trying to stop a narcotic nuisance. They're not necessarily trying to stop medical necessity. Yep. yep. So if you look at the Single Treaty Geneva Convention of the Psychotropic Substances, uh, there are exceptions for medical use. Mm -hmm. But it has to be in a country where it was legal, and there are all these loops you've got to jump through. So I looked at this and felt like this is valid. I want to welcome you to our new home in Oakland, California. We're in the Gateway Incubator, which is a, a place that early stage companies can come and get investment and support and guidance. They've been nice enough to ask me to be a mentor here, which means that I can kind of guide the companies a little bit, give them my opinion, try to help them with my experience. And so they're starting their first class next week with 10 startups. Uh, they'll have several classes after that, and I encourage you to sign up. Uh, they've also announced that they're going to open up the rest of the space just for co-working. So if you're a cannabis company in the Bay Area and you're looking for a desk space, which is a pretty novel thing in, the, in cannabis, to be honest, uh, you can come here and rent a desk for a little bit of money every month and, and benefit from their network and get some support, meet some really cool people. So I ended up going um, and debating the DEA in, in, in the first week of March of 1995 at the University of Miami. On, on the bequest of LVMe Seeker, I was her guest and Florida Normals. And so this is a normal event? That, uh, yes, I, at the University yeah. of, of Miami, they would, Florida Normal would hold, would, would hold debates. And you know, so they invited the Southeast Quadrant leader of the DEA, his name was Wayne Rokes. Um, he's nice to me, but he, <laughs> he took a hard line approach, of course, that you know we're already giving marijuana to people. Look at LV. Here's an example. The government's compassionate. Y'all just got to wait your turn. We're figuring out if it's safe. And I was like, well, what about us that have cancer? We're not going to wait for you to do all this. I have a Dutch physician's prescription. Are you going to arrest me when I come back through? I'll go get my medicine now if you're not going to stop people from having cannabis for legitimate medicine. And if looks could kill, I probably would have been, you know, vaporized on the spot. But uh, he said, no, I'm not going to arrest you. And I said, okay, you're all my witness. I'll fly to Holland tomorrow. We'll see if he's bluffing. And uh, I did. And um, <laughs> Martin Air allowed me to smoke on the plane. Because when I went to Elvie's house, it was March of 95. And I called and I said, do you have flights to Amsterdam tomorrow? And they said, yes. Smoking or non-smoking? I said, you can smoke on a plane? They said, oh, yeah, international flights over nine and a half hours. It's cool. And I was like, well, then, I have a Dutch physician's prescription for medical cannabis, and I'm supposed to use it every two hours. Would that be OK? And they're like, hold the line, please. <laughs> they came back and said, I'm going to need to talk to my manager. Yes, and they came back and said, well, if you're willing to show your prescription to one of the, the stewardesses, I don't think it's a problem at all, but you have to sit in the tobacco section. And I was like, sign me up. You know, so I, I flew there and back and smoking weed on the plane. 95, 95, 95, got video of it. Then they let me, you know, I mean, the guy next to me was smoking a camel, offered me a cigarette, I offered him a joint, we both declined, it was a great flight. Wow. Yeah, and um, it was Dutch owned. So Martin Air was owned by KLM, KLM is, you know, Royal Premier Line, so yeah. yeah. So, um, and at the time there was smoking allowed and under Dutch law, my prescription was valid. So yeah. hey, and once you get in the air, you're you're in yeah, you're into Dutch honestly, law. Honestly, the, the more shocking part to that story is that you could smoke anything in an airplane, right? Not that to me, was that was the what? Yeah. You know, yeah. you can smoke because I don't smoke tobacco, so I was absolutely shocked. So I flew there, flew back. I didn't get arrested. They let me through customs, and I felt 
incredibly bolstered. And then I opened the San Diego Compact. Vindicated, right? It was like this, mm, this moment of I don't clarity know about vindication, but you know, look, I think it's a struggle. And I think that we don't get our rights, you know, you know, you know, people that are black don't get to, you know, hide being black when they drive their car. You know, we can hide our stash. So it was, you know, I understood the hypocrisy and bigotry I was dealing with in life, and it, and it, and it broke my heart, you know, and it gives you emancipation papers in a weird way, because suddenly I could hold them and go, I have a doctor's prescription, I have rights, screw you. And they would go, oh. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that came from traveling with L.V. Musica, because she was getting medical cannabis from the U.S. government. So uh, when cops would come up to her, she'd say, no, you can't touch this. This is from the U.S. government. It supersedes your state laws. You touch this, I'll sue you. And they, at times, did take her weed and had to give it back. Mm. Because when they checked it, the feds were like, yeah, we gave that to her. Yeah, give it back. Wow. Yeah. So, so when I, you say the feds gave it to her, I mean, where does she go? <clears throat> okay. She so get this so yeah. since the early 70s, the federal government, if not the late 60s, had been growing medical cannabis at the University of Mississippi uh, and supplying it to what's called the Research Triangle Institute. They then roll it into joints, put it in cans. And since mid-70s, Robert Randall was the first AIDS patient. Uh, Initially, Robert had glaucoma, um, but I think later on he did contract AIDS. But uh, Robert Randall was a speechwriter under Nixon in DC, and he sued uh, and won uh, his right and started getting cannabis from the University of Mississippi. He became the first what was called Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program patient. We call it the uh, IND program. Mm -hmm. So when Robert Randall did this, he felt uh, an incredible need to help other people, and he created what was called ACT, which was Alliance for Therapeutic Cannabis, I believe. Um, Alliance for Cannabis Therapeutics. And what he ended up doing is streamlining the process of application so people could sign up to get the medicine he was getting. And that, of course, happened under Reagan. And Nancy and Ron didn't think it sent a good message. (laughs) The program was eventually shut down by Bush one because he stated it sent the wrong message during the war on drugs. You know, because, you know, helping people who are sick, that's just totally inhumane. So uh, they grandfathered in people like uh, Herb Rosenfield and L.V. Musica and others uh, that were already getting cannabis. But unfortunately, their doctors have died off, they've died off, and now we're only down to two patients. I think the government really wanted to prove that it didn't work because they send stuff to L.V. that is literally... Uh, manufactured two or three years prior to them shipping it to her. Wow. So, I, and I, I could prove it. I could show you photos of manufactured dates and prescription dates on the same label, and you're thinking, how the hell yeah. is this ever copacetic? But so what, is, what is the half-life of, of cannabis, give or take? Nine I mean, how long is nine uh, months. The cannabinoids start to break down. I mean, you have a window where, it, it, where cannabinoid degradation will start happening, I think, after nine, ten months, unless it's refrigerated or frozen and... and right held in different ways. I doubt any of that is. I mean, the stuff she gets is, you know, the chlorophyll's mostly diminished, it looks brownish, it smells horrible, and it still helps her for the sake of the conversation. Yeah, Yeah, it's only about 7% THC, and it still helps keep her eye pressure down. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. LV's one of my heroes. She's been a biggest advocate of medical cannabis since I've I've known her. You know, we don't have that many uh, women and minorities in this movement because, you know, Traditionally, you know, women are moms and they take care of their kids and they don't want to lose them to CPA and, and uh, I get it. And, you know, my black friends, 
you know, barely can get to the fucking rally without getting pulled over and harassed. So I get why they're not next to me too. And you know, I'd, I'd like to see as time changes, we get more diversity into this conversation, but for a while I understand why it's been a bunch of white guys, you know, fighting the system. And do you feel a duty to represent them in that way? Like I, I, aim, I am able to come out and talk about this? You know, you know um, sure, in a way, I, 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 look, when I went to prison, for instance, a lot, you know, the kindest people to me were mostly colored, to be really honest with you. Um, I didn't have a lot in common with a lot of the white guys that were in for meth or other fucked up drugs I don't do. And, you know, I'm obviously not racist at all, but I see racism all around us, sure. you know, and uh, classism at that too, you know. Wiz Khalifa talks about it in one of our movies that when he was young and poor, you know, he couldn't get away with smoking some weed, but now that he's older and rich, no problem. He's right. not a threat to society. He's a right. tax-paying contributor. Yeah. You know, leave him alone. Yeah, I, I think, I think classism the, is a big problem. I think one of the starkest example uh, my dad talks about is, you know, he'll have a friend that owns a restaurant, right? And, and we'll go in and they won't let us pay for dinner. But if you were a homeless person and you really, really needed that meal... He won't give you dinner. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here, right? I mean, it's, it's... I see where you're feeling it. You know, and this is in a weird way, like, I think I do believe in, you know, democratic socialism. I use highways to get here. I like public libraries. I like, you know, with my house catches a fire, that a fire department comes. Uh, you know, I, I see that helping each other is a beneficial thing. I have no issues against it. I'm, I believe in capitalism to a degree, but, you know, we got to help each other. And when I started the San Diego Compassion Club, and reporters would ask me, why are you calling it a Compassion Club? And I said, well, look, I don't think this is a matter of capitalism. You know, it's not like I'm a pharmaceutical company trying to make a buck off somebody suffering through cancer. I have empathy for them. I've been through it. I think this is a question of compassion. You know, are you going to let your kids suffer? And all of them will say Just no. Just like your mom wouldn't let you suffer. Absolutely not, yeah. you know. And I, who could? I mean, if you've got some benign herb that can help somebody and you're going to withhold it from them because you have political bigotry yeah. it doesn't make sense to me you touched on your time in prison a little bit i just want to back up i think that's a interesting part of the story so throughout this whole sort of activist period of your life with jack Herrera and lv and everything you you're growing pretty pretty substantially as well well correct? not substantially i mean <clears throat> you know fortunately for me i've you know i've been pretty adventurous and i've done other things i mean cannabis was part of growing for me was it keeps me you know plentifully supplied with my own cannabis for most of the time in the 80s and 90s that I was you know, growing pot when I was younger was that, I mean, ounce for ounce, it cost more than gold. I was getting 400 bucks an ounce, an ounce, was selling for, an ounce of gold was two to 300. How long did it take Mother Nature to make an ounce of gold? It took me like you know, three to four months to make an ounce of weed, and that includes pre-grow. So I, I get that I was benefiting from prohibition, and I felt like a hypocrite fighting hypocrisy, and I didn't like that, and it made me, more active. I understand in a way that my activities were going to eventually put that opportunity out of business for me, but I truthfully believe that if more people had the ability to experience cannabis like I did, that their lives would be better and that society would be happier and it would be less angry and there'd be less drinking and there'd be less pharmaceutical use and less cigarette use and this whole vibe would be a lot different. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know of any examples of someone that smoked weed and then beat their wife. Right? Or, no. Uh, you know, it, it's just... I've, I've never seen a fight in an Amsterdam coffee shop. Yeah, yeah exactly. Never, never, you yeah. know, and I think that cannabis makes friends and it's a good vibe. I can't wait until cannabis is pennies a pound and everybody can get it. 
I'm not an advocate for keeping organic cannabis artificially expensive so we can protect small growers or mom and pop operations that have profited off of cannabis prohibition for the last 30 years. Yeah. I say too bad, your, your, your turn's over. They have to evolve just like everybody Absolutely. else. Absolutely, right? you yeah. can always be a boutique grower. You can always grow your own plants and enjoy your own you know, bounty sure. and your own harvest. It's not gonna be worth shit it's still gonna be like tomatoes. Sure, go grow your own heirloom tomatoes. Yeah, but there's They're some, still cheaper at Whole Foods. There, there's some precedent for this though, right? I mean, like kind of small batch, micro brewing, and you know, they create a brand, they have a certain following. I have nothing against it. It's just that I think now we're, we're dealing with pot growers who are being very disingenuous about their opposition to um, big companies legalizing because really what they're trying to do, you know, they're, advocate, they're advocating to keep the status quo because they see the, uh, the evidential demise of their profits. There's no ways around it. I mean, listen, when I was staying up in Humboldt County in 94 and Mendocino County, weed was 4,800 a pound. Now they're lucky to get 1,800 a pound. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's still quasi- Simple economics, right? It's simple yeah. economics. Yeah. And you know, they don't want to go, you know, they don't want to change with it. They know they're not going to be able to produce thousands of pounds of consistent pot and sell it. And you know, right now, if you want to buy something and I have it, I would say, okay, you want to buy this? I'll figure out my cost. I'll double my cost. I'll sell it to you at Jay, a jobber. You take it, you sell it to him at wholesale. He takes it, sells it for retail. We all vacation together. Okay, but with cannabis, you say, what's your cost of production? I go, oh, forget about that. How much will you give me? And mm. that's not how this works. How much do you have? Right, that, right, that right, right. Which, which you go for money, yeah, right. Right, and, right? And the problem is, is that that's not how it's going to be in the future. People are going to say, "Wow, it cost me, you know, dollar fifty to make that pound of tomatoes. I'll sell it to you for three bucks, yeah. and that's it. Three bucks a pound. Now you've got this standard that you're going to have to reach, where people are looking at it. Someone's going to do the math. Someone's going to figure out the lights, or figure out the fertilizer, figure out the water, figure out the rent, and go. This is what it cost me per unit. Yeah, it's yeah. so refreshing to hear you talk about it. Uh, in unit economics and, and sort of like a normal business because I think so many people that are in the cannabis industry, uh, they still see that it's like sort of mythical creature, right? Or like, right. They, you know, they're, they're creating this gold up in the hills and we should be honored that they're bringing it to us, you know, and we should pay whatever they want because, well, they made this gold, right? And, and I think the real answer is it's a commodity like, like many others. Yeah. And if you've found a way to do a better mousetrap, well, hell yeah, that's great. And that's one of the reasons we do this show is to, to feature people like that. Uh, but refreshing to hear you talk about it in, in simple economic jargon. terms. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's the future. And anyone who thinks otherwise is just kidding themselves. Yeah, it's, yeah. So uh, so you have this grow, and then when when is it, when do you kind of get the feeling that you're getting in trouble a little bit? If you'll no, tell well, what ended up happening is I lived in Amsterdam for over a year and I was working at a place called Positronics, which was like a little marijuana mini mall. We had mother plants, we sold clones, we made equipment, we had a restaurant, we taught people how to grow, we sold paraphernalia and seeds. We even produced a magazine called Soft Secrets at the time. Um, we were almost like an activist-based business. Uh, the owner, Renard, was very much an activist and he and I became best friends. Uh, I was around a lot of industrial growing then where I could go see greenhouses and you know bigger bigger plantations we'll say so and, and while I was in Amsterdam 215 change passed so Dennis Perone and John Whistle, who were the you know key proponents and the authors of it uh, with Anna Boyce they came over to Amsterdam and spent a couple weeks at the Cannabis Cup in 96 and me and Dennis go back years at that point and we were good friends, me, him, and John. So they spent a lot of time at the place I was working, Positronics. And we all believed 
in democracy, meaning that when the law changed, we thought that that meant something. We didn't think that the powers that be were just going to ignore it like it was meaningless. So we were um, really optimistic. And they were encouraging me, come on, Todd, you know, come back home. Everybody needs you, yada, yada, all that bullshit. But so I, um, and I was cold. Uh, and I, and I was, <laughs> that was pretty much my motivator. Um, but at the same time, I met Peter McWilliams. So Peter McWilliams is the publisher of my first book. Okay. Um, he was a five-time New York Times bestselling author. He had gotten cancer and AIDS diagnosed to him in March of 96. I had read one of his, actually I'd read multiple books before I met him, but he wrote a book called Ain't Nobody's Business If You Do, The Absurdity of Consensual Crimes in Our Free Society. It was an 800-page tome of a book, and he borrowed heavily from The Emperor Wears No Clothes. So one day Jack handed me this massive hardback and said, read this, I think he plagiarized us. And I was like, <laughs> But I loved the book. He didn't plagiarize us at all. He cited it exactly as you should, and I was blown away. I had read one of his other books earlier called Do It, Let's Get Off Our Butts when I was living in Florida and it motivated me to go to California. And I ended up, <clears throat> his uh, boyfriend at the time uh, was in Amsterdam because Peter was looking for uh, an expert that he could basically work on his new book, A Question of Compassion with. So I had just come out with this magazine um, because while I was in living in Amsterdam, I was uh, working as editor-in-chief uh, for a magazine, and I did Hemp Life. Okay. So uh, while everyone else was kind of like hiding under a pseudonym and putting, you know, fake photos, I put my real name in a picture of me holding a joint. Because I, you were living in Amsterdam. No, no. Believe it or not, other magazines in Europe were still hiding their identity because we still had the oppression 20 years ago that we honestly still have even and worse now there. did you just not give a fuck, or you were just, you know... I think we got to set an example of being proud. I mean, you know, uh, I feel as if, you know, at that time, I, <clears throat> going back a little bit, uh, I had gotten busted in Ohio trying to make my way to Rhode Island to set up a second compassion club. Mm -hmm. I got pulled over by a five-car drug interdiction team on Interstate 80, and I spent the summer of 95 in jail. And uh, good times. Uh, what happened, though, was rather interesting. Because I had that Dutch prescription, I argued at my uh, basically opening hearing that I was legal under international law, which superseded both federal and state law. And the judge let me stand up and talk. So I, the prosecutor was saying that I was a drug dealer and I owned my own home and I was all these bad things. And it was true, I owned my own home and I was growing pot, but I had permission of the, the San Diego City Council. I um, helped them pass a medical marijuana ordinance that was just like clarifying their position. It was like a position statement. Before they went really conservative, they were actually really um, supportive of what I was doing back in 95. Uh, I thought San Diego was a great place back then. It was prior to, obviously, 215 passing. But then I got arrested. The cops raided my house. City of San Diego wouldn't cooperate in the raid of my house, which was pretty, um, at the time, huge. Wow. I was sitting on a $150,000 bond for 30 pounds, and they were saying I was going to face 30 years in jail, uh, and my girlfriend, too. Uh, so that sucked. But um, I made the argument that my Dutch prescription made me legal. The judge actually listened to me and uh, said, listen, if you can get an American doctor to you know, validate your Dutch physician's prescription, I'll consider letting you have it while you're incarcerated. So I was like, whoa. But because I was in the middle of nowhere, the grand jury only uh, meets once a month, and they just met. 
So I had to sit there for a month oh, wow. waiting for them to meet again and say you committed a felony wow. and put a bond on me. How fucked. Oh, yeah, wow. so fucked. So um, I sat there for a month, but in that month that happened, my other house, my house in San Diego got raided, and my office, which was the San Diego Compassion Club, had sent all this paperwork to my public pretender instead of defender. So um, he was uh, totally joking. So, but, he, but then I embarrassed him because I stood up and said all this stuff and the judge listened to me and I turned him into a little paper pusher and the judge was looking at the city council and he saw that, yeah, he saw all the paperwork was valid. He saw my Dutch position. He saw my, I had copies of the single treaty Geneva Convention and psychotropic substances. I even had com um, photocopies of the customs because customs allows it. And he was, I think, a little blown away and he uh, allowed me to get vindication. So I went and called the owner of the Ohio Hempery at the time. His name was Don Wirtshafter. He's a, an attorney and still an activist, still my friend. And he got a hold of uh, Dr. Lester Grinspoon from, from Harvard, who I had already knew, Dr. John Morgan from City University of New York, who wrote Marijuana Myths, Marijuana Facts. Not at that time, the book came out later. John was my friend. And Dr. Todd McAreer right here at Berkeley, who was the first, one of the very first um, whistleblowers in cannabis. He was one of the first doctors to bring medical cannabis to the mainstream, even before Lester Grinspoon. And um, Todd and I were good friends. So all three doctors wrote letters to the judge saying, yes, we would prescribe this. And Dr. John Morgan even waited till the FDA opened, called them up and said, basically, I've got a patient who got prescription medication in Europe. Is it legal for him to bring it back in? They said, yeah, what is it? They said, marijuana. He said, where'd you get it? He said, Holland. He said, whoa, my, my, guess, guess he found the hole in the dike. You know? And John <laughs> laughed at this. So he wrote a letter to the judge saying, not only is it legal, here's the number, call them up, check for yourself. The judge, that, that was the first uh, recommendation verification hotline, right? Well, really, yeah, you know, <laughs> right? yeah. So the judge, I think, didn't know what to do with it, and he uh, sat on it. But at the time, the Associated Press, this woman, Margie Farnham, I remember really well, uh, was there and interviewed me. Um, and she held the story because she said to me later that she wanted to give the judge the moment, a moment to do the right thing without pressure. But then the weekend passed, and then USA Today came out with an editorial using me as an example of why medical cannabis should be legal, starting off with Todd McCormick left his home in San Diego to help the series seal. Only problem, the help he wants to deliver is illegal. And it was great. And they mm. ended it saying, sick people deserve help, not a ticket to jail. Mm. And uh, it was pretty powerful. So when she saw that, she released the story. And the next day, you know, every major news organization showed up and interviewed me, and they didn't know what to do with me. It was front page on the Toledo Blade and uh, the local newspapers, inmate to smoke pot at CCNO. They didn't know what to do. So my lawyer comes in and says, check it out. <clears throat> your bond has been lowered from 150 grand to two grand. I already called your girlfriend and told her you're getting out, and you just got to sign these papers and get the hell out of our state. Uh. We're going to call you back and find a reason to dismiss this, and I wish you well. And I was like, I want my pot back. He goes, I knew you were going to say that. It's a civil matter. It's not my problem. And uh, yeah, here's the paperwork. Get out of the state, seriously. He just didn't want anything to do with you. Didn't anymore. want nothing to he do with it. So I, uh, he was really over it. <laughs> so I signed the paperwork, and they got me out the next day. And, um, wow. and I left and ended up uh, basically going home and then got the invite. Uh, New York Times had covered it. And High Times was um, basically contacted by 60 Minutes that they were going to cover the Cannabis Cup. So Hager, Steve Hager, who was the editor at the time of High Times, said, you know, please, we were friends. And he said, Todd, would you please, you know, we'll fly you over and you show around 60 Minutes. You're like the most articulate guy I can hook him up with, so please do this. And so I did. I, I hung out with Morley and we had a good time. And 
uh, he brought him to my doctor and they gave him a great interview and they were really good about it. I mean, awesome. 60 Minutes was fantastic. They took it totally seriously. Yeah, and they have a history of doing that, right? Yeah. Of sort of being very, very, I don't know, pro-cannabis, but, but giving an accurate depiction of what's they're going on. They're real journalists. Yeah, they're I real think, journalists. I think they don't yeah. take it from a biased standpoint. They want, it, they, they want to tell the truth. They want to get to the bottom of the story. And I thought it was really cool. But this moment of public media outcry, right, that lowered your bail. Well, what, well, that was, okay, so yeah. It, so that happens, I get bumped, I go home, I move to Amsterdam. Fast forward to me coming home, meeting Peter. Yeah. He gives me a quarter million dollar book advance and I went looking for a house in LA and I found this castle-styled mansion on a hill up Stone Canyon. And yeah, I guess I always wanted a castle-styled mansion in yeah. LA, I just didn't know it. So I went up there and rented, <laughs> rented the house. And, and does this, begin to, to sort of elevate you to in this celebrity no, world? No, no, I mean, no, 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 no. Yeah. You know, I was, I'm still, I don't feel like I'm any kind of celebrity, but. No, but you're talking about Bill Maher and okay, Dan Rather. Well, there was this I'm, groundswell of, right, of celebrity. My, 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 the, way, the way I got into their world is I, uh, <clears throat> I moved into their neighborhood and became their neighbor. We're, yeah. we're great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, how'd you meet them? I waved to them. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, Literally, yeah, I moved into Bel Air and I had friends that knew Woody and I met his family first and then I met Woody and we became good friends and then um, through Woody, I met Larry Flint and then one night we, me and Woody were at a Blues Traveler concert and I met Bill Maher. Bill introduced us, uh, Bill invited us, I mean, to be on his show Politically. He invited Woody to be on his show Politically Incorrect. He didn't give up about me, but, um, <laughs> but Woody was like, have him on, he, he's relevant. What, what do you want me to talk about? And he was like, oh, you're the marijuana guy. I can't have the marijuana guy on. And he was like, why not? And, and then he was like, well, would you both come on? And that's why Bill, Woody and I did Politically Incorrect in 98. I mean, a little old lady wrote to me from Boise, Idaho once, 71 years old, talking about reading about me on ifeminist.com. I'm in prison not even knowing what the hell ifeminist.com is, thinking, how did I reach that demographic? Yeah. Boise, Idaho, 71 <laughs> years old. And she's like, I think you're doing a good job. And, uh, couldn't believe it, you yeah. know, like couldn't believe it. And, and in some ways, you know, I don't want to say going to prison for five years, it makes it worthwhile, but in some ways it was the reason I was doing it. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, to reach people, I felt like I was mentally liberated. You know, there's that line in the Bob Marley song, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. I did that. I was free. It's just trying to convince other people they should be free. And, and as a kid suffering, you have a lot of empathy for other people suffering. It's just intrinsic. So I don't want to see other people suffer. And if I can do something to abate their suffering, fuck yeah, I'm, I'm there. Yeah, and it so it sounds like you didn't get super depressed in prison. You had all this support letters, people reaching out, visiting you. Were, were you scared? Is that, I mean, you're clearly someone that does not belong in prison. Right? So, um, no. you know, I'm, I, I started studying martial arts when I was 12. I'm not really good at the scared thing. And, uh, you know, and, and truthfully, I thought it was an adventure. You know, it's like being at the circus and you want to go through the house of horrors, even though you know it's going to scare the shit out of you. You, you want to experience it. And, and there was a part of me that all my heroes, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and others, had gone to jail willingly. You know, so I, when, when I engaged in this, I always knew that I was, you know, I, I was pissing off the powers that be but I wasn't afraid of going to prison, if that made sense. I was never at all shying about the fact that that's where I was probably gonna, and that's why I've never cooperated. I mean, in the entire time I've been, every, I've been prosecuted three times since I got out of prison, and I'll never cooperate. And it's, mm. it's not that I hate them, it's just that we're on different sides of the ideological fence. And it's, I just think that they're wrong, 
and we're winning. We're, the truth will set us free, and we just got to keep pushing forward the truth. Yeah. You know, and my my heroes are people like Martin Luther King, who went to prison willingly over and over and over again to prove well, a point. Honestly, I think it's so important. Myself and other people that have come into the cannabis industry more more recently. I mean, I, I thank you for, for making that huge sacrifice because that's the reason that I am able to smoke cannabis and it's grown a little more freely in California and much of my lifestyle in this show and, and uh, you know, the cross-section of startups now is, is thanks to people that have made that sacrifice. And I, so. I appreciate you saying that. You know, personally, I think that the progress we made has been good. It's just that for me, myself, I wasn't going to get bullied or frightened into giving up. You know, there was a good, a good guy, his name was Brian Epis. He unfortunately got a 10-year sentence uh, around the same time I did because he was planning uh, to do things in the industry and they used his intention to basically lock him up. He unfortunately went to jail uh, and when he was getting out, they offered him like an 18 months off his, off his sentence if he would not go back to activism. And you can read about it in the Sacramento Bee. And I, after reading that, I thought, God, they must really hate me, because not only did I not shut up when I got out of prison, you know, I made movies, put out books. Yeah, did you think events. about it for a second? When you get out of prison after how long? It was four or five, five. years, five years, right? Yeah, 87 and a half percent Do you think for a second, years. like, maybe I should cool it a little bit? Hardly. Uh, no, uh, no, 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 no. You know, see, this is the thing. I mean, I felt like we're right. I mean, I feel like they're wrong, and I feel like it was really weird, but like, this, you know, look, I, I, I self-surrendered January 3rd, 2000, and when I did, the federal marshal that I had to self-surrender to, uh, when I went in, I, I turned myself in, and it, it was really an amusing thing, because when I knocked on the window and they called my name on the, inter, the, the intercom, all these, the whole room went quiet, and he comes walking through, like, excuse me, pardon me, and when we look back, the whole room was still quiet, and he's like, let's step outside. And when I did, he said, you know, because of you, I won the cooler bet. And I said, what was the cooler bet? He goes, well, a lot of people thought you weren't going to show up. I was like, fuck them. And he goes, I knew you'd say that. He goes, yo, I'm from Cranston, which is like below the city I grew up in by like one city. And I was like, get out of here. He goes, no, I called my mom and told her I had to pick you up today. She bitched me out for 20 minutes, man. He's like, you got a lot of support back at home. And I was like, dude, you're killing me right now. And he was like, yeah. And, 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 and this is the marshal receiving me. And he's like, lets me kiss my girlfriend, you know, goodbye, and then, you know, lets us hug, and then he apologizes for having to put cuffs on me, you know? Wow. And then when the judge remanded me into custody, he, he's over here almost crying, takes me out of the car, I'm like, dude, it's gonna be okay, you know, like, and he brings me down to the car, and like, I'm giving him a pep talk, because he's like, I can't believe he locked you up, this is just, I hate my job right now, and this was my experience. So, so it's hard to be mad. So there's such a disconnect between the law, right, and, the and people how it's having written, to enforce and the it. people having to enforce it. I find that fascinating, and I think that trickles to today, right? I mean, that hasn't changed so much. You know, look, I, and this is the thing. I'm not anti-cop. I mean, someone steals my truck, I'm not calling the fire department. You know what I'm saying? So truth be told, um, and after going through prison, uh, there are a lot of idiots in the world. There's yeah. people think that robbing and raping and stealing is and okay. Yeah. totally cool. Yeah. And they'll sit there playing cards and brag about it, and I hate them. You know, so I get it. We need cops. What we don't need is cops enforcing bad laws. So when you waste their time and make them chase kids for like some flowers in their pocket, or you're over here counting the amount of plants in some dude's basement and his neighbor's got a fucking stockpile of AKs, that's whack, you know? And I'm kind of sick of the hypocrisy, you know? Yep. And that's where, to me, I'm fighting the hypocrisy. To me, look, I realized at a young age that we die at the end. I skip forward to the end of my, they kill my character in this script. So <laughs> fuck it, I'm gonna have a fun time. And that's why even when I went to prison, I told the judge what I thought for 45 minutes. I wasn't right. shy, you know? I, I feel like, you know, 
I'm not groveling to anybody. And I'm not, you know, we're, we're coming from an honest and true place. And we have science and we have history on our side. They don't. They're lying. And yeah. I won't accept the lie. So, yeah. no. When I got out of prison, it never dawned on me to, like, chill out at all. Um, I actually started a nursery and started selling OG Kush cuttings around L.A. And then I got busted again in uh, June of... Uh, June of uh, 2006, actually. Yep. Uh, not a good experience. <laughs> but a worse experience. I got swatted. Uh, a pot club operator who I was selling my cuttings to decided they could make probably an extra 300 plus grand a year if they didn't have to pay me for the cuttings that they were buying from me. Okay. So even at 100 cuttings a day at 10 bucks a piece, that's over 360 grand a year. So um, they, they did what's called swatting. They take a, a disposable cell phone. It became kind of fashionable in LA years later um, or into, the, into that, you know, 2006, seven, eight, nine, you started hearing about all these celebrities getting swatted and now it's so bad that LAPD doesn't even tell the press when they have to go deal with these because it's so, they don't want there to be so many copycat crimes. Um, so in the middle of the night I got raided and uh, pretty horrible. I ended up getting the, the tape back, and it's, it was Dr. Dina Browner who turned me in. Her and Andrew Kramer, who is now serving 25 to life because he was using LA gangbangers as enforcers in LA. I mean, anyone can go look it up. I mean, this industry has dealt with some real opportunists that are greedy people that are coming in and trying to just make money yep. and, and being completely fake, pretending they're the inspiration for Showtime shows and all other bullshit. Whatever people believe, they'll, they'll feed. And, you know, believe it or not, the first time I got turned in in 1997 was by Scott Emler and the Los Angeles Cannabis Buyers Club. He was credited in open court with the prosecution, the cooperation in the prosecution of Todd McCormick. The LA Times turned it into a Bel Air man who was unable to raise a medical necessity defense at trial. But my friends were in the audience when he got, in the court audience when he got sentenced. And Michael Gray, who wrote Drug Crazy, who's now passed away, said, No, Todd, the judge said Todd McCormick. He did not say a Bel Air man. Mm. And that's when he was shattered because he was supporting these people, thinking they were activists. And then the whole thing hit that, wow, they were just opportunists. They were prosecuting my friend or me. You know, Michael's attitude was they were prosecuting my friend while pretending to be activists. And we're still seeing that. We're, we're seeing that more than ever now because these business owners are pretending they're political activists when they're really just capitalistic opportunists. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that brings up an interesting question, too. I mean, uh, we're seeing a shift, I think, in the cannabis world, particularly in the legal cannabis world, where it's okay to make money now. Right where where you don't have to be a not for profit dispensary, uh, and we're we're in the gateway incubator in Oakland here, yeah. and and they very much are supporting the the next generation of cannabis entrepreneurs, and and I wonder what your feeling is towards uh, sort of the new class of, of cannabis business. I listen. I like my iPhone. I got no problems with Apple being the world's most profitable company, or Google bumping them, or or using my Windows products, or driving my truck. I look, you know. I have no qualms with profiteering. Uh, it's what got us our shoes, our sneakers, our yeah. shirts, you know? Yeah. The thing is, is I think we don't have regulation. So in a situation where you can't challenge people in court, so if you're a vendor and you go front your pot to some pot club in San Jose and they don't pay you, you have no ramification other than to take it to the street, so to speak. And that's really screwed, you know? So I think that regulation as it comes is gonna benefit us all because we're not going to have thugs 
in the cannabis industry pretending to be angels, yep. you know, and pretending like they're giving pot to veterans when in fact they're using LA gangbangers to ship it all over the world, you know, like, or go rob people or do home invasions, all of which they were charged with. So it's, it's weird to see the evolution of this and you have to look through people. You have to really look at the, real, the reality and not just the, the facade of, of what's in front of you. Fortunately for me, I've been really good at reading reality and, and I, I think because of that, I have lifelong friends that have just been great. Uh, some of my best friends own cannabis clubs, so not all cannabis club owners are at all opportunistic you know, capitalists, a lot of them have their heart in the right place. You had Debbie on, Debbie Goldsberry. I mean, absolutely one of the people that comes from a place of sincerity and, you know, Berkeley One of the most Patriots genuine group. people I've ever met, I think. Yeah, I Seriously. got a lot of love for Debbie. We, me yeah. and Debbie have been friends since, like, she's 22 years now. And there's a lot more like her, AT and Fontan, who now, you know, owns Berkeley Patient Group, yep. a former veteran. Me and him used to go on the road together and do college after college. You know, yeah, I think he's on the show in a couple of weeks. So. Oh, yeah. he'd be great. Yeah. He's, yeah, yeah. He'd be great. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of very good people in this industry, to be truthful. And, um, you know, it's like any industry. As the profits grow, the motivation to kind of come in, it, it grows with it. And, you know, we'll navigate it in time. I mean, I look forward to the industry changing and becoming a place where uh, people don't have to use gang members to go enforce yeah. things where they can just call their lawyer, go to court, deal with it like normal stuff. Yeah. You know, we have over a thousand liquor licenses in Oakland. We have eight, eight cannabis club licenses. Imagine if we took away all those liquor licenses and it was all illegal liquor distribution here. Think of the violence. We would go right back to Al Capone. Yeah, it'd be crazy. It'd yeah. be crazy. We have that crazy now and that's what I hope regulation and the future is gonna get rid of. Yeah, I'd like to hear your, your prediction here on uh, sort of the future, right? I mean, you talked a little bit about what that's going to look like. Um, Sean Parker has proposed this, this bill in California. Uh, yeah. Not yet on the ballot. I think that happens in July or so where the ballot is finalized. What, what do you think of that, of that proposal? 62 pages is a lot of proposal. Um, look, we're, I don't think it's the end all at all. I think that it's the beginning of the change. I, I worked on Proposition 19, which a lot of people didn't like, but truth be told, it was a step in the right direction. Um, I believe that we have incremental progress and it's gonna take a while to get where we wanna go, but the truth is uh, we have a long way to get there. When you think of the alcohol industry, you think of Jack Daniels, for instance, there's a bottle on every shelf. Well, it's all manufactured in Lynchburg, Tennessee. So we're gonna get to a place where this is an import-export economy where people in you know, Tennessee are gonna want Humboldt County buds or they're gonna want real tie stick and you know, Amazon's gonna deliver it and it's gonna be no big deal. It's, it's, I see that it's all gonna change. I, I don't think it's gonna be just localized and, and I think all these people that think that they can hold on to what we have are wrong. I mm. think things are changing on a massive level and I wanna see them change. I mean, they're still snapping necks in Asian countries. You know, Malaysia will still kill you. You know, and I think we need to reach them because a lot of those laws are American-based laws. Yeah. We brought those laws to them in the 20th century. Yeah, I think so often we're insulated by this Bay Area bubble or even California bubble. Everywhere else in the world, it's still highly, highly illegal. 
and punishable by right. many years in prison or death in some of the most extreme cases. And uh, we have to continue this fight, even when we do have it legalized in California. I think that's going to happen in, in November here. It, it, the war isn't over, right? I mean, uh, they, yeah. they call it the draw, uh, war on drugs, but I see it a little bit differently. It's a, it's a war on like civil liberty in, in yeah. a lot of ways. I always joke, it's a war on some drugs. Some drugs. Yeah, yeah I like yeah. that. Because it is. It's only some drugs, you know? And realistically, I think as this all changes and people get information and they see the truth and see the history, that's really the emancipation key. Because yeah. once you learn this truth and you feel confident to step up or stand out or, or come out of your closet, so to speak, it changes the way that we interact. And, you know, Bill Maher likes to say that cannabis is the new uh, gay rights, you know, gay marriage. And in a way, it is. I can see that people are now coming forward and demanding their rights and saying, no, you have to accept me. You have to accept my lifestyle. I'm not going to tolerate you being a bigot towards me anymore. It's, it's a big theme of this show, is starting to break down those stereotypes. Yes. That someone that consumes cannabis sits on their couch and is just eating Cheetos and having food delivered, right? And that's not the way I live my life. It's not the way you live your life. You know, when I got busted in the Bel Air Mansion, I think it was hard for a lot of the reporters to be like, well, if you're a kid who had cancer and you had lifelong pot use, what are you doing living in a Bel Air Mansion? Yeah. Like, shouldn't you be, you know, homeless or something? And instead, you're hanging out with rock stars and you've got staff and what, what, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. If, you're, if this is true for you, everything I know is wrong. And it is true, everything is wrong, because some of the most you know, influential people, Hefner, Stoner, you know, look at Oliver Stone, stoned all the time. You yeah. know, look at Bill, he built his career. I asked him once, what do you consider cannabis has ever done for your career? He said, well, gave me every good idea I've ever had. <laughs> he was joking, but you know, it is inspirational, <laughs> not entirely, no. You know, and I, I think that for a lot of people, Paul McCartney, others, look at how creative it's been for them. I think it allows you to make different kinds of connections in your brain that you wouldn't have otherwise. I think that's probably the simplest way to, to Calm describe you down. it for me. Calm Let you think straight, you know, yeah. gives you rationale, gives yeah. you a different approach, gives you perspective. Yeah. And I think all that's, you know, honestly really, really great, you know, personally. Yeah. You know. So I just want to touch on a couple more pieces that, that have been pretty influential for me. Uh, the Union was the first ever uh, cannabis documentary I think I watched ever, and I think widely thought of to be the best one. You're featured in this, right? So thank you for being a part of that. Yeah. And then this Culture High, which came out in 2014, right? Yep. You're the executive producer on this yep. one. One of them, yep. yep. Amazing stuff. I mean, what? why continue to make all this? Is it activism? Does it just get you excited every day? I mean, well, you know, um, you know look, after doing Jack's book, it's hard to sit people down and get them to read a book. <laughs> yeah. So when I got out of prison and I met my uh, these guys doing the union, they were doing a really good job. Of, they were trying to put it together. So I was, I had the bridges to the celebrities, Joe Rogan, doctors and, and officers at Leap and such, and I helped them bring them into the documentary and produce the, do it, because for me it was a matter of getting the message out. Um, we did it at a time when the internet just sped up and people started trading movies like they were trading songs. So our movie went viral, mm -hmm. which really was great. We never expected that mm -hmm. to happen. And it happened because it was activism and people's enthusiasm for the subject. So we released that in 2007 and by 2009, 10, there was so much support or people like you stepping up and saying, this really helped me with my parents, this was great, this yeah. helped me understand it, that we realized, why don't we do a second film? And um, so we started, it took us five years, it cost us almost a million dollars, and a few years into it, we wanted to do a theatrical release and our distributors wouldn't pay for it. So Adam Scorgi decided he wanted to do a fundraising campaign on Kickstarter, which 
they, the distributors thought was going to be our, the death nail in our coffin, because if we fail, the whole thing will have a black eye. And instead, over 3,400 people pre-bought DVDs, and we raised over a quarter million dollars wow. in 43 days. And it showed us the enthusiasm where these were the same people that at one point stole our movie, who are now paying it forward and helping us make another one. Somebody's life will be ruined today. And that somebody is probably hundreds of people. To begin to demonstrate an understanding of humanity is so counter to our way of thinking. It's throw away the key. Let's lock them up. And you believe it up until your son or your daughter or your friends or yourself gets caught up in the same nightmare. So this is The Emperor Wears No Clothes. It was written by Jack Herrera back in 1984. This is the 12th edition of the book, which I released after Jack passed away, um, completely revised with um, a dedication to Jack and his old partner, Ed. And then what I also did is I put memorials in it um, to Jack, um, starting with me, of course, and then Steve D. from Harborside, Steve Bloom, Debbie Goldsberry, one of your guests. And because uh, we all kind of owe the beginning of our enlightenment to Jack. And um, so the emperor wears no clothes. I grew this leaf. <laughs> this came out of my garden in 1997. Uh, when I was living in Amsterdam, I was the editor-in-chief of Hemp Life magazine. Uh, this was my first attempt at making a magazine. This is me when I was like 25. And a lot of the other editors were... This was bold, right? I mean, to, oh, to yeah. put your face in a joint in, in a book like that, that was unheard of. My peers were using pseudonyms and hiding behind fake photos, and I thought that was cheesy. So I wanted to just, you know, not be afraid anymore. I just, that was it. So this came out, this hit the newsstands, November of 1996. Um, then this book, uh, I wrote this uh, in 1998. This was released in uh, the end of 98, 99. This was the book I was writing when I got raided in my Bel Air mansion. Um, I was raided, I had 4,116 plants, they said, and each of these trays holds 98, so you could see how easily I had so many plants. And, I, you know, I feel that cannabis cultivation is something that we should all do and uh, for ourselves if we want to. This is funny, you're working in the prison garden because you grew your own medicine? <laughs> you're shitting me. I uh, just had to have some fun with it back in That's the day. Awesome. Um, yeah, and then uh, when I got out of prison, <laughs> uh, me and my friends made the movie The Union, the business behind getting high. This was the first documentary I helped produce. I helped get Joe Rogan, Dr. Todd McAria, Dr. Lester Grinspoon, The Offices for Leap, and I held the THC Expo. I won't and this is about like the first of that kind of yeah. event, right? I mean, This was the first large-scale cannabis event in the United States easily, yes. Um, I wanted to make a point, and using the Los Angeles Convention Center to make a point, I felt like it was a really good way to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I did my magazine a little different. This was uh, the food, fuel, fiber, and medicine, so to speak, and then there was the inspiration. So what I did it as a flip. These pages were black ink with, uh, black pages with white ink. This was the floor of the THC Expo at the time. And this is more the stony side, the culture side, the chasing strains, making hash. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like cannabis has a bit of duality to it. Yep. Yeah. So it's one of those things that, you know, and now I'm still doing this. Now this has become hemp.xxx, and I'm working on uh, bringing back the magazine as more of an intellectual magazine. Got it, yeah. Uh, in 2010, I've been good friends with Vivian McPeak, seeing hair, uh, standing facing the crowd. And uh, Seattle Hemp Fest has been dear to my heart. So on their 20th anniversary, Vivian McPeak and I actually created this book. 
Um, sorry, giving it to a friend of mine, but uh, this is Vivian and I uh, making the project happen. So we did each year, each chapter is a different year, and what we did is we showed the evolution of the Seattle Hemp Fest mm. and um, how it went from being basically the Hemp Expo in 1991 all the way up to becoming an, you know, an absolutely epic part of us fighting uh, prohibition. And, and what time of year is that occur? We, um, this, this happens um, usually the third weekend in August every year, and it's uh, sometimes a, by, uh, attended by over 100,000 people. Yes, gotta put that on my calendar. Oh yeah, you'll, you'll really love it. I, I'm really proud to be part and help, have helped um, Hempfest now and then over the years. Uh, good people, good message. Uh, it's been a great event. I've spoken there a number of years and I think it's just fantastic. When Jack passed away, we dedicated 2010 to Jack, mm. and I was one of their main sponsors, and um, that's when I revised the book and we released it at the, uh, at the Seattle Hemp Fest. Um, highly recommend. Awesome. And then one of my latest projects has been The Culture High. It was a follow-up to our film, The Union, The Business Behind Getting High. This features um, Joe Rogan again. We also have Richard Branson, Wiz Khalifa, Snoop Dogg. Um, Dr. Lester Grinspoon, a host of professionals. Really Another just like great. watershed documentary in the industry, I think. I mean, uh, you Thank were you. talking earlier a little bit. It's been translated on Netflix into how many languages? Fifth, we, we are currently in 70 countries and 15 languages, wow. and we just got accepted to go worldwide with their rollout. So you're going to be able to see this literally everywhere Netflix is. Make sure you check that out, guys. If you're a fan of this show, I mean, you're going to walk away after a couple hours with just such a a breadth of knowledge about this subject. I highly recommend it on that one too. Well, thanks. You know, and then you know, my latest project is Hemp.xxx. Please, you know, join the community, check it out. Which, which you do uh, the Hass Church on on Sunday mornings. Can you tell us just briefly about what that is? We do. We uh, we have a panel of experts that gather together. We do a live broadcast on Sunday mornings uh, to basically just talk about cannabis. It was started by my friend Marcus. Uh, who's better known as Bubble Man. He was the guy that sold the bubble bags and made bubble hash. And Mark couldn't come to America and I couldn't go to Canada, so we would kind of talk on these Google Hangouts. And we decided one day to start you know, basically sh sharing them with the world. And that's kind of how that took off. And now, yeah, more and more people are watching and we do it every Sunday. Very cool, very cool. Well, thank you again. This has been great. No, this was, this was awesome, man. Investing in cannabis is 100% independent media. That means that we don't have a big parent company, sponsors don't dictate what we do. Uh, we can bring you the facts, we can bring you the actual truth, we can bring you the great stories that maybe mainstream media doesn't want you to see. But in order to maintain that, I, I need you. Uh, so there's this great startup called Patreon in San Francisco, uh, and they allowed you to donate a little bit of money every month, five, 10, 20 bucks, uh, to help support the creators, us, Investing in Cannabis, of this great content that you love to watch. Even if you, you aren't in a position to come out to the world or you've got a conservative job, uh, if, if you're smoking cannabis, if you're enjoying it, uh, just you know, donate a little bit of money to us anonymously. And it's just your little way to stay connected to the industry, even if you can't shout it from the rooftops. Yeah. Uh, you know, just give five, ten bucks a month. I mean, you're, you're buying that weed anyways. And it gives you a chance to invest in cannabis.